0: Hello, and welcome to the Bliss Smith Podcast. My name is Katie Smith, and here you will learn ways to find, forge, and follow your bliss by hearing stories from people like you on overcoming obstacles, diving deeply into passion, investing in yourselves and others, and uniting in gratitude to celebrate every last joy. I can't wait for you to listen. do it to it hey scott
1: hi katie how are you
0: good how are you
1: i'm doing spectacular as much as i can in the midst of you know the apocalypse
0: The it's feeling that way it has for a while uh we're doing things like this though to keep us entertained that's fair that's fair well, let's get this party started. Um, I would love for you to just share a bit about who you are and what you're up to. Okay.
1: Uh, so, yeah, as you know, my name is Scott Daniel, but you've known that for, you know, about 20 years now.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I am a, a former attorney, former practicing attorney uh, living in Reno, Nevada, uh, and now published author of a, a novel titled American Phoenix. Um, I have been uh, I have been pretty active in the field of civic education since high school uh, as you know, because uh, uh, you know for your listeners, uh, you know Katie and I met actually I believe it was in, it wasn't in we the People it was in a uh, the theater performance workshop. That, I person. couldn't
0: figure that out. I was like, I know that when we met in we the People, which is a government class everyone which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I was like, no, I met Scott before that and I was trying to pinpoint what it was. So please tell us about that.
1: So yeah, uh, you know, you know, I was a theater geek in high school. And uh, so I was a senior, you were a freshman, I believe. And there were a lot of freshmen in that class. Uh, and it was a, a theater performance workshop class uh, with Trish Pastore, who was this legendary uh, yes. drama teacher at Reed High School in Sparks, Nevada. And uh, yeah, so I remember I helped you out with a couple of scenes. Uh, and you know, that's, I, you know, we became friends then. And then a few years, a couple years later, your senior year, uh, uh, my senior year, I was in a class, uh, called we, the people, which is really kind of a crash course in the constitution and, um, you know, runs through things like, you know, natural rights philosophy and the declaration of independence. And then also the civil rights movement and institutions of government. It's, it's a really all immersive, um, type of class. And it's also competitive. There's a, a competitive element to it. It's a mock congressional hearing uh, where, you know, teams from all over the country compete, uh, you know, answering questions and fielding cross ex questions from, you know, lawyers and judges and, and journalists. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the champions of each state go to DC in the spring for the national finals. Uh, I was in the class as a senior and then I went and helped out and I kind of coached the class again for a few years and Katie, you were in that, that class in
0: 2003. Mm, and, aging me, uh, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I graduated in 2000. And okay, so fair, fair. I'm technically, I'm technically an elder millennial. You are. So, like, literally at the cutoff. I think they call us the Oregon Trail Generation because we're the ones that are right I'm on the cutoff. C- rem- you, know, you and I both, rem- we still remember card catalogs and you know, all these non-digital ways of learning. But, um, but anyway, uh, I've been really passionate about civics, uh, about uh, living an active civic life. I've been, uh, really devoted to the Constitution that led me to law school. Um, I went to, uh, I graduated from American University, uh, Washington College of Law in 2009, um, started practicing, kind of crashed really hard, burned out right around the time, right around 2016, 2017, which I think in a cosmic sense correlates to some other events happening in our, in our world um, and in our country. But um, that's really what uh, uh, civics is kind of like, it's kind of like a, it's almost spiritual to me. Uh, It's, it's, you know, the idea of, you know, community building and, and, and building people's resilience to um, resilience against, tyranny and resilience uh, in favor of democracy, that's something that has really driven my, both my career and my, my um, you know, extra vocational activities really for my entire adult life. Uh, and so um, obviously these are very interesting times for all of us, um, uh, not always in a positive way. It can be pretty dark for, for a lot of people as we've seen this last week. Uh, with what's been happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, which has really been echoed across the country. And so I really think that this is a, um, this is a really vulnerable time for our country. It's a, it's a pivotal time for our country. Um, And it really, it's really incumbent upon the people of this country to, um, to take action, you know, into their own hands, not in a, you know, vigilante way but more in in terms of taking responsibility for our communities and for each other and i think that that's something that this COVID 19 outbreak uh as well as the black lives matter uh protests etc have really kind of brought into sharper relief so um that's really kind of that's what's driving me forward right now that's kind of giving me purpose in 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 the midst of a time that is so uncertain for so many people
0: It's so great that you said purpose there at, at the end, because I, um, m- one of my questions to you was going to be like, how do you keep going? You know, you said you had a burnout a couple years ago and here we are with a lot more burnout material, uh, this year. And, um, but for me, and I- I'd love for you to expand, like for me, purpose is one of the things that keeps me going. It's why you're on this podcast right now is like, I feel a purpose to share stories and, and to make people feel like they have, uh, the ability to move forward.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, um, and that, that burnout, you know, and just, you know, for context, I had. In between, you know, 2010, 2011 and 2016, 2017 for that period. I was a solo practitioner in Nevada and I, um, and I did a lot of, uh, employment rights, you know, employee rights, discrimination, some sexual harassment cases. I also did some civil rights, uh, cases. Uh, I had two against the, um, uh, the Clark County detention center in Las Vegas concerning, uh, inmate abuse. Uh, and, and I had a variety of other cases and I was literally handling all this on my own. I had an assistant very briefly, but for the most part, I was kind of running the show on my own, you know, uh, almost certainly bit off more than I could chew, uh, kind of being invested in these, uh, uh, being really invested in the lives of people whose livelihoods, uh, or even their physical health were really threatened by, um, people in authority who uh, believe that they had the power and the ability to abuse that authority with impunity, uh, and when you're a solo practitioner, uh, you know you, you're you're literally the, you know like the Lincoln lawyer hanging out your own shingle, and I was going up against you know the biggest law firms in Nevada you know, uh, you know, multi-lawyer firms, you know, 30 or 40 lawyers, uh, with all the resources, uh, resources in the world with big, you know, insurance policies backing them. And, and, you know, I kind of felt like, you know, Luke Skywalker going against the death star. Uh, mm-hmm. and it, I think it really exacerbated, you know, I, I, I really, my nervous system really kind of failed, uh, toward the end, uh, where I just, uh, it, it was too much, mm-hmm. uh, kind of trying to play hero, kind of trying to, you know, put the, the weight of the world on my own shoulders, which was mistake number one of many. Uh, and so what that really did around 2016 or 2017, um, and I, I know that, you know, that Bliss Smith is not a, a partisan podcast uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the, the literal sense, but um, I think that uh, most of us felt a sense of kind of existential dread at the results of the 2016 election, uh, in particular, it was it came across as shocking because you know, it, particularly for me as somebody who was representing you know a lot of you know uh, vulnerable vulnerable people and vulnerable populations, the rhetoric uh, and the um, the the doubling down on uh, uh, you know racism and xenophobia and uh, you know misogyny uh, that we saw, I, I think. It kind of shocked. It shocked me, and I think it probably shocked you and a lot of other people for sure. who, for our entire lives, had kind of a faith or a trust that most people in this country, or at least a critical mass of people in this country, were were so were good enough to recognize that and to reject it. Uh, and yet, we saw a lot of people making what you know, from my vantage point, was a, a devil's bargain that in, in exchange for whatever you know tax relief, right. you thought get that you were willing to exchange. Well, I'm not sure I care what happens to people crossing the border. You know, they're illegal anyway. That's the way that it goes. And I, I remember around that time, uh, you know, this is November of 2016 and, uh, it, it really, you know, blindsided a lot of us. Uh, and I actually, that was around the time that I was starting to say, I really need to, to reconsider whether I want to practice law anymore. Uh, And I decided at that point in time, I was like, I need to wind this down. Uh, This is going to kill me, especially if I'm worried about all the other things in the world on top of it. Mm -hmm. And kind of coasted on, on whatever savings I had and said, well, I I need to find some kind of larger purpose in the midst of all this. Um, I need to, there's, you know, I'm one of those people that I believe that there is meaning behind everything that happens. Um, there's, uh, you know, uh, I would suggest say that, uh, one of the, uh, greatest influences in my life has been, uh, there's a book by the name of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with *Mankind's search for meaning by Dr. Victor Frankel. No. Uh, he was a, you know, for reference, he was a Holocaust survivor at Auschwitz. Uh, and he was a therapist in Austria who effectively, um, in going through what he went through uh, you know, seeing so many of his, you know, his fellow people perishing, uh, you know, brutally. Uh, at that point in time, it's, it's difficult to find happiness or to find feelings of exaltation or joy in life. And that's sort of the thing that normally drives people is the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of mm-hmm. some joy. And uh, what I saw from, you know, what I gleaned from that book uh, was the idea that what makes our life meaningful isn't necessarily just fleeting feelings of happiness or fleeting feelings of joy or, or pleasure, uh, but the virtue of purpose. And he invented an entire therapy based on this called logotherapy, which was the idea that even in the midst of all of this, uh, he maintained his sanity through purpose. And, uh, and that purpose kind of has to transcend just yourself. So I decided that I wanted to do what I could to, you know, begin to educate people about, um, you know, democracy, uh, authoritarianism, the threat of tyranny, uh, and, and what effectively a demagogic and um, really unscrupulous ruler could do to a population uh, based on my own education and just based just kind of based on my own interaction with some of the 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 defendants I had to go against you know I got to see human nature in the raw and I Mm. really saw it um uh, a hundredfold in Donald Trump so I initially started a a, I started a Facebook page ostensibly uh that would have you know I I had plans for growing it into something larger called keepers of the republic uh and I remember uh, this yes based on uh Uh, There's an old story from the Constitutional Convention after the convention ends in 1787. uh, Benjamin Franklin is approached by a woman who says, well, Dr. Franklin, what have we got, a a monarchy or a republic? And Dr. Franklin said, a republic, if you can keep it. Mm -hmm. And those words really resonated with me uh, because the idea that democracy and freedom and uh and and a society based upon the common good and um and mutual affection we especially for those of us growing up in the the 80s and 90s we grew up in kind of a relatively calm period in history where there there were things going on in other parts of the world but things from our vantage point at least for those of us who grew up in kind of white suburban areas was kind of blissful Mm -hmm. and So we kind of, I think, got it into our heads that this thing was self-sustaining, that it would always be this way, that uh, there is, there's no going back to Jim Crow and racism. There's no going back to, you know, having a monarch. And that's just simply not true. You know, we say that it can't happen here, but it can, it has, and it is happening here. Right. And so.
0: And in some ways never left.
1: Correct. It's really Mm -hmm. kind of, it's. You know, these sorts of of themes of tyranny and racism and oppression, they've always been with us in one form or another. Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of kind of, it's almost like, you know, when guests are coming over and you want to clean up the house, you don't really clean up the house. You just sweep things under the carpet. You just Mm -hmm. shove the closet. And I feel like we did that after the civil rights movement for about 30 or 40 years. Uh, up until really the early 21st century with 9-11 and the Iraq war, I think some of those things, re- the, the xenophobia really started to, uh, it was no longer dormant. It started to become real and visceral. Visceral. I think the election of Barack Obama triggered a lot of people who had some deep-seated racism. And that, you know, translated into a lot of what we saw in the Tea Party and then ultimately in the election of Donald Trump. And, you uh, so I had started this group ostensibly to kind of take some of the concepts that I had learned and taught through We The People from law school, from my own experience, and kind of uh, shape them into you know kind of an, a, a, a sort of curriculum for adult civic education. And this was, I was trying to do this as I was winding my law practice down. And I just kind of reached a critical mass point where I was like, I couldn't do either. Mm. And I personally just kind of collapsed. Uh, I... Um, it really kind of, you know, from a personal standpoint, uh, unveiled a lot of, um, you know, kind of neurological issues that I've been dealing with, uh, for most of my life, most of my adult life that I had really kind of, you know, ignored and kind of forced me to kind of have to, you know, seek treatment for that. Mm -hmm. And I spent a couple of years, you know, 2017, uh, into 2019, really just kind of, um, taking it easy. Um, you know, I. Which is crazy. I, you know, I had a, uh, you know, I, like technically have a doctorate, you know, in the sense of a juris doctor, and then, you know, for money, I was working for my dad's insurance agency, and I was driving Uber Eats, and mm. but all the while, I was, I, I, I thought, okay, um, I don't know if I can, uh, I don't know if I can do something, you know, like Keepers of Republic. I don't know if I can like lead a nonprofit right now. It's kind of ridiculous, you know, in my in my state. But I have to be able to do something because it struck me that America had lost touch with its core story, with its core narrative. Um, and so that's when I started writing the book, American Phoenix. I don't know if you, you want to talk about that now or later, but um, you know, so yeah, so that, that's really kind of what got me to where I am now. I know that was a lot, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I, it's, um, thank you for sharing. It's pretty remarkable because I, feel like all a lot of this passion and sense of purpose that you have had, like I saw when I was a senior in high school and you like, and that's what I think is so um, interesting and remarkable about you is that you have, you were born with this. And, uh, you know, I, I was telling you on the the phone the other night is, uh, you know, I was 18 and I registered the same um, party as my dad and voted for whatever he told me to vote for because I did, you know, could, didn't care, didn't, um, you know, didn't get it. And there you are in like a similar age and you're like, let's be the keepers of the Republic in, in some sense. And so that, that is just so like, where did that come from?
1: That's a great question. I'm not sure entirely where that came from. Um, I think, and, and I, I really appreciate you saying that, you know, that, that this is with me early on. I think my parents would disagree. Uh, I think they would, they would have thought I was kind of shit for most, you know, most of my, my younger years, but. Um,
0: let me add them. Let me tell them.
1: That's fair. So, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, in school, I always loved social studies. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, that was the subject in elementary and, and middle school that I, I excelled at. Um, you know, I, I, I was, it was a pretty good student overall, but social studies in particular. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny you say that, you know, I, I was also somebody who, you know, my, my background, I, I came from kind of a, I, I want to say a soft evangelical background, like growing up in, you know, kind of, you know, Christian circles and so relatively conservative circles. And I actually still have a, a soft spot for a lot of, um, you know, uh, A lot of people who are conservative, not in the sense of being, you know, ultra right wing and, you know, bigoted and, um, and intolerant, but in terms of people who say, I do think that government can overreach sometimes I do want, you know, like, you know, my dad's a small business owner and Mm -hmm. his concerns are valid. Uh, I grew up kind of in that same way vein with you, where I kind of was like, all right, I, this is, uh, uh, I I believe that, you know, that the United States of America was, you know, endowed by God with this, you know, this kind of um, exceptional uh, mission in the world. And I do think that America has a very exceptional uh, ethos, a very exceptional idea, this notion that a a nation uh, is really formed not from ethnic ties, but from civic ties. You know, the fact that, you know, we choose to be Americans, uh, and I, there, I can't pinpoint where or when I really kind of this idea of, you know, really be, being good at social studies and really engaged with politics kind of crossed the line to being a, like a personal passion where I started to really connect it with the life around me. Mm. Uh, I don't know when that happened. I couldn't tell you. I think we, the people definitely had a, a big, uh, role in that in kind of triggering that sense of social responsibility uh and and fidelity and love for uh the the idea of the constitution um i i think ultimately where it kind of came to a head was you know and in college you know i kind of i kind of moved to the left a little bit i know a lot of people say well he was brainwashed Uh, that's not necessarily the case i uh, i just kind of had new experiences with other people who had gone through things that I hadn't gone through and I was able to read more and expand my horizons. And so I kind of, you know, shifted away from just accepting whatever I had grown up with and said, well, I'm going to forge my own path. And I think it was really in law school, uh, where, um, the rubber really started to meet the road. Um, uh, my, yeah, I went to American university, as I said, and it's a very, um, cosmopolitan law school, very diverse law school. We also happen to have, you know, one of the top five uh, clinical programs in the country where law students will actually um, uh, represent clients. And I had the, the fortune of being selected. I'm not sure how I got into it, but I was selected to be uh, a student attorney in the international human rights law clinic uh, mm-hmm. during the year, which deals with, there were two branches, one that dealt with immigration strictly immigration issues, another one that dealt with kind of broader human rights issues. And I was selected for that clinic. And my very first client uh, was a survivor uh, of the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Uh, In 2008, 2009, she was applying for asylum. And and here I was 26 years old with me and my partner. Uh, I spoke a little bit of French. She spoke a little bit of Spanish. So we kind of were able to kind of, you know, uh, combined to connect with our clients. And we literally had, uh, we were handed the case from the previous years to student attorneys. And we had about six weeks to gather, you know, the information, gather the evidence we needed for her to get asylum to prove that if she were returned to Rwanda, that her, uh, you, she was in mortal danger within weeks of her arrival in Rwanda. And so we had to kind of put that together on the fly. I didn't get a lot of sleep those six weeks in this, uh, you know, in the months leading up to the 2008 election, uh, whereas a lot of people were focused on Barack Obama or John McCain, I was focused on this. Mm -hmm. And what that kind of did for me, and we ultimately won the case. Amazing. um, You know, know, by the skin of our teeth, we won that case. And uh, it really hammered home for me the idea that, you know, policy and politics and government, these things in the, they 're not abstractions um, I, I take them personally uh, I b- believe as James Baldwin said in the 60s that uh, the personal is political and the political is personal you know laws policies impact people they can be life or death for some people uh, for most of us who had the privilege of growing up in you know, you know kind of suburban I don't want to say paradise but ennui and you know where we just we just lived our lives and, you know, climbed into minivans and, you know, went places that policy, whoever was in charge, it really impacted us in a way that we noticed. Yeah. Um, but really, I think what that did for me is it, it helped to open my eyes to the fact that policy and government at every level, local, state, federal, even international law can have a profound impact on the lives of individuals uh, on their livelihoods, on their very lives themselves. And so that really kind of drove my, um, my legal practice for the next seven or eight years. Um, the motto of my firm was do justice. The idea is that I needed to, my goal wasn't just to win cases. It was to do justice in the lives of my clients and to the community as well. And so that, so my career really kind of dovetailed with my passion for justice, the idea that there is right, there is wrong. There are gray areas in between, but ultimately there's still light and there's still dark and I need to fight for the light and not for the dark. And that's something that, um, you know, uh, that I strive to be as imperfectly as I am, as much as I have failed some of my clients, uh, I still strive to be an ally of the light. And mm-hmm. I, I take that concept seriously. Uh, and I strive to emulate that, um, in my civic life.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't know if that question.
0: It answers that and more. And it's, I just, um, I'm, I'm loving this. This is fantastic. And I, I think, and we spoke a bit about this, like one of my goals from having you on here is to highlight this importance of being, uh, being civic-minded and um, and I think especially right now that absolutely points all arrows to exercising your right to vote. Um, and so I'd love to talk about two things, you know. However, we want to glom them together. One is why is it important to vote, and how do you make being civic-minded approachable? Because so many people are not you, Scott, and you, and that's why you're on this show, (laughs) show, I don't know, it's a show, um, you're here is because you are extremely special and passionate in that way. How do we get people to approach this and learn about policies and feel more of a sense of responsibility?
1: Okay. It's a great question. Well, those are two great questions. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I'm not sure how I can it's one of those things. It's a chicken or egg thing. I'm not sure how I can answer one without also answering the other. At the do same it. Time.
0: You're so efficient.
1: Okay. So let's let, us i am going to try and do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to give, give kind of a mini We the people lesson here Great. Uh, in, in a handful of minutes. So, you know, I, I tend to view things abstractly and that kind of, you know, I, I'm a very deductive thinker. I tend to think in terms of big ideas And then those big ideas, you know, I pull them down from the sky into my own life, and then I apply them. Most people aren't that way. You know, most people are inductive. They're experience-oriented. People are impacted by their experiences. um, uh, Most people get involved in politics to the extent that they do because there's an issue that is personal to them, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Until it happens to you, it's like otherwise it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I think that's human nature. Uh, I think that the the founders of this country had a pretty good understanding of human nature that that self that you know this this self interest is something that drives people. And instead of trying to you know make everybody altruistic, the idea is that we need to have kind of some principle of enlightened self interest. The idea that uh, what uh, what drives us is both what benefits ourselves but also benefits the community and benefits you know people around us and i think that um a lot of people who are not as civically engaged may not vote or they may only vote on issues that pertain to them for instance you know taxes or some people it's abortion or some people it's uh you know some people it's immigration uh, and these things that impact them and i can't tell you that there is any one universal way to get people, to drive people to becoming civic-minded, I don't think that it's. I don't think that it would be beneficial to our country if everybody in this country were like you or I per se. You know, where we where we're driven to see these bigger issues. Um, but I, I look at it like this: I look at voting not. I think a lot of people view voting the same way they view filing a tax return. It's kind of something that's like, all right, I should do. All right, so I'm going to do this. You know, hey, I get a sticker. I voted. I've done my quote-unquote duty. And then it's – but it's kind of divorced from the rest of their lives. And that's fine because not everybody has the energy or the time to really engage in all this stuff the way that that I do. Um, But the way I view voting is I I view voting as uh, having a stake in the community, the idea of being a stakeholder, not just being a passive citizen or resident of the country you live in, but the idea that uh, I get to actively participate and shape and co-create the the world around me. That's, that's, I I view voting as almost in the same way. As I said, it's kind of spiritual for me. I kind of view it as prayer. It's a prayer that this is what I want. These are the things that I want. This is the person I want in power. This is the type of country that I want to see Uh, for by way of analogy, whenever kids that I work with um, at Reno high school ask me, well, hey, you know, should I go to law school? I'm like, I'm kind of interested in that. You know, I say you're asking the wrong question. Uh, The question is, should not be, should I go to law school or should I become a lawyer? The question should be, what do you want your life to look like in 10, 15, 20 years? You know, what are the things that you want to be doing? You know, Mm -hmm. what type of have? Where do you want to live geographically? Put the end before the means. Mm-hmm. And then once you see the end, then you can decide what are the best means to get you there. And so that kind of weeds some people out. You know, some people are like, well, you know, I want to, you know, I want to own a business. And I think, you know, going to law school would, would help with that. I'm like, no, it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Going to law school helps you for one thing and one thing only, being a practicing lawyer to professional school. So in a similar way, I think the question shouldn't be, How do we get people to vote? The question should be, how do we get people to see what they want their lives, as well as the life of the country to be in 10, 15, 20 years? You know, uh, there's a reason why younger people don't vote as, as much as older people do. Older people become, you know, as we get older, we become more concerned with legacy things. We become more concerned with what we leave behind as opposed to what we get. Mm-hmm. voting to me ought to be and it isn't always but it ought to be altruistic in the sense that i am not just voting for something that will um that will benefit me and i think that's part of our that's a huge part of our problem civically is that people view voting uh almost like you know uh, purchasing stock you know it's something that i i choose to do this i invest in this because i think it will benefit me in the short and or the long run sure. and i think Voting on honestly ought to be an investment in what you believe the country should look like in the future. And you have to balance a lot of considerations. That's the way I approach things. When I go to the polls is I look at each candidate and I don't just look at their policies. I also look at what they represent, what vision for this country they represent. And, uh, I think that now in this election, you know, uh, again, I know this isn't a partisan podcast, uh, but, uh, for me, this isn't really an issue of left versus right. It's an issue of right versus wrong. So I don't think that the, the the stakes for what our country will look like in the 10, 15, 20 years could be more stark right. uh, in t- you know, what our options are. And so I think driving people to the polls, you can't ask people, well, vote because voting is your civic duty, right? Because yeah, I think a lot of people just look at you and say, well, how does it benefit me? You know, what, what do I get out of it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the wrong question. The question should be, why should I go to the polls? Because as I said before, policy impacts people. Laws impact people. They have a direct impact on the lives of, of, of everyday Americans. And so what you're doing is you are exercising your sovereignty. The idea of America, the idea of the United States of America one that has you know we have not fulfilled from the beginning but i think it's a great idea as much as you know we've dealt with slavery and jim crow and you know these institutions of that are really uh are, you know, being brought into sharp relief relief as white supremacists or at least white nationalists um those institutions have lasted but they've been competing with another idea the idea ironically uh, written down by a slaveholder named Thomas Jefferson, this idea that all men are created equal and endowed by our creator, you know, whomever you believe in or whatever you believe in, you know, with certain inalienable rights among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that effectively we create government, we, the people ordain and establish our government in order to serve that end and to serve Mm -hmm. this balance between order and liberty that ultimately respects the sovereignty of the individual in the midst of the community. And what we have to do is we have to reconstitute this idea that what we're doing when we're going to vote is we are going to effectively exercise our sovereignty. The idea of democracy is, the word democracy comes from the Greek, demos kratos. Demos meaning people, kratos meaning rule, the people ruling. And what do we rule? We rule a republic, which in the Latin is res publia. Res meaning property, publia meaning of the people. So the people rule their own property, which is the country. And so the idea that we need to take ownership over our country, uh, that is the most powerful thing that we have. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why autocrats try to suppress votes. There's a reason why they intimidate people at the polls. Because popular uprisings and popular movements to make a statement to say, this is what we want and not this. This is what we want for our future. We want a future where we respect basic human rights, where children in Flint, Michigan, aren't drinking, you know, water that's contaminated with lead and copper. uh, One in which (laughs) our troops are not Targeted by foreign uh, uh, foreign governments with the full knowledge of the man who is allegedly the commander in chief. Uh, these are things that we want, and we will never get them unless we take them. We make that most important expression, and that expression is, "I'm going to the ballot box, and I'm going to check this box. I'm going to pull this lever. That is ultimately." The last resort, the last bastion of freedom is at the ballot box. And there's a reason why that has been at the epicenter of every civil rights movement from the revolution to now is the idea that we need to ensure access to the ballot box. And if you have access, if you happen to be somebody who doesn't have the privilege or that you do have the privilege uh, where people aren't questioning your ID and uh if you don't have uh, you know, issues with maybe going to the mail to get your ballot in, I think you have a responsibility. I take his responsibility that if that person, you know, if my neighbor is having difficulty getting to the ballot box, I at the very least have the responsibility to cast my vote in a way that benefits him or benefits her. Mm-hmm. And not so I think what we have to ask to, to get people to become more civic-minded is to understand that my freedom is inextricably intertwined with the freedom of my neighbor right the freedom rider said if i'm not for if my brother is not free then i'm not free so in that sense um i think that that it's not just enough in my opinion to get people to vote Uh, that's why i think the generic go vote you know efforts kind of fall flat to me because I will tell you that there are certain people deep down, I kind of don't want them to vote because of what they would vote for. Sure. Obviously have, you know, they have the absolute right to do so. But what I think we ought to do, as opposed to just simply saying go vote is to really start to kind of educate people uh, to see the connection, the consequences of voting or failure to vote. And also the consequences of vote of not voting strategically for the thing that you want of throwing away your vote on a candidate that may or may not actually have a chance of winning and may actually detract from what you want. The idea that mm-hmm. we need to, be able to understand that we are voting not just for people that are going to be in power, we are voting for outcomes and outcomes that we will endure the consequences of. And that is something that um, in this social media world we live in, this clickbait world where You know, and I admit that I spend a lot more time, you know, just scrolling through TikTok and Twitter than I ought to. Mm. Uh, But this instant gratification culture has a very difficult time seeing beyond that. Yeah. What we need to get to is a point where people are actually understanding the consequence of policy. I think COVID-19 has really exposed that because everybody is impacted by bad policy right now.
0: Yeah. So, and and I agree with that, and I think that's something that I've always struggled with is um, saying out loud like what I believe in, because I think I'm just overly people pleasing and diplomatic. Um, and I like what you said about you know educating yourself, because I think that it, uh, so and why I said over people pleasing and diplomatic is you know it's easy for me to say go vote, because then I don't have to say like. Vote for who or whatever, knowing uh, knowing that I think people who know who I am know what I want from this election, which is Joe Biden. I'll just say it out loud, and um, you know, and and, but I think, but more importantly, I I love what you're saying. Like it's it's the the future that we want, well beyond the next four years. Um, You know, thinking about me wanting to raise a family, like what, what future is my, it feels very cliche, but I I love it. Like, what am I, what am I demanding today that my children will live through for years and years to come, you know, way beyond this election. And, um, I I just think that's really powerful to start thinking about just how to be, how to educate yourself and, and make, decisions that are right for a the greater good and b for the future and not uh holding holding on uh white knuckled to the past
1: correct uh that's that's absolutely true and and you know i know that i've kind of talked in abs- in a little bit of abstraction so far so let me kind of give you um i'll give you one example um i mean there, there are you know, pivotal elections throughout history. There are some that are more or less pivotal than others. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln's election was very consequential. In 1860, it led to a civil war and the, ultimately the abolition of chattel slavery. Um, well, I'm gonna focus actually on an election that occurred exactly 100 years later. And that's the 1960 election between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. You know, this is, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy was the Democrat, Richard Nixon was the Republican nixon was the vice president for dwight eisenhower and eisenhower as republicans go is actually fairly liberal Uh, you know he uh, you know quarterbacked uh school integration in arkansas uh he built the interstate highway system he believed in the new deal and and social security and things like that and he was a very ultimately very popular president a very middle of the road president richard nixon much more conservative Again, I want to reiterate, I don't think that conservatism per se is a problem. Uh, totally. I, there, is, there is room for in this country for en, enlightened conservatism. Uh, I, George Will, uh, uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, some of the other conservative commentators, particularly, you know, I, I kind of gravitate towards the ones that are anti-Trump. Uh, but I think that they have, they have something to add to this conversation. And this country will always have uh, voices from different perspectives right? We're always going to have that that tug and pull between, you know, uh, how much should government do? How much should it not do? Uh, and, and we're always going to meet somewhere in the middle, maybe closer to one than the other. But Richard, Nick, the, the, the contrast between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, which may or may not have been as obvious at the time, could not be more stark. Because uh, and John F. Kennedy, won by a very razor thin margin, right? It was really, you know, the state of Illinois, you know, that uh, you can, you know, there are allegations of voter fraud in Illinois during that election that gave it to Kennedy. I'm not going to touch that. But ultimately, there were very razor thin margins. When I talk about razor thin margins, I'm talking like one or two votes per precinct. Whoa. uh, You know, swayed that election. And the consequence of that election is that John F. Kennedy is the president that ultimately, uh, Back to the Civil Rights Act, and the idea is that the Civil Rights Act arose in response to the um, uh, to the riots in Birmingham in, in 1963, and and John F. Kennedy was somebody who believed in this vision of universal human rights, and it's something that uh, that really, as as imperfect as he was, and as um, as slow to move on civil rights as he was, he ultimately still believed in it. And I think that in 1963, which was the year he was ultimately assassinated, uh, he ended up putting forth um, in June of 1963 a plan uh, for a Civil Rights Act to ensure that, that all people, particularly the Blacks who had suffered under Jim Crow, had the ability to sleep in a hotel or to eat at a diner or right. to really enjoy public accommodations that the rest of us enjoy. And John F. Kennedy pushed that would Richard Nixon have responded the same? I don't think so. As we saw with Richard Nixon's candidacy in 1968 when he won, he ran on this idea of law and order, uh, which, now, great television show, great concept to have law and order. We want law and order. We don't want chaos in our lives. We want the rule of law. But it was kind of a dog whistle to a lot of aggrieved suburban white voters who uh, were aghast at the Violence in the streets of places like Chicago uh, or Los Angeles in the Watts riot. And these big cities, these cosmopolitan cities, and this this fear of crime, this fear of chaos, drove Richard Nixon in that direction. So Richard Nixon was no great friend to civil rights. And had Richard Nixon won that election in 1960, I predict that the entire not the entirety of the 1960s would have probably looked a lot different. It would have looked a lot more like an extension of the 1950s. Now, and so in that election, pulling the lever for John F. Kennedy wasn't just, I think he's prettier than Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Pulling the lever for John F. Kennedy ultimately shifted the course of human events. It shifted the course of history. It literally had an impact on what we do today. Would we have ultimately had a civil rights act otherwise? Possibly, probably. Later, but it wouldn't have come as soon as it did. So elections have immediate and long term consequences. We are living with the consequences of every single election, mayoral, presidential, congressional, that we've ever had in our history. It has all contributed to that stream. And it's the most direct thing we can do to shape history and to shape not just history writ large, but our own individual lives, because we have to live through history.
0: That's extre- that's extremely ex- inspiring, and I I'm so excited for people to listen to this and really just get a history lesson and understand, you know how how they can impact the outcome of again not the next what we can see in front of us but forever, and I I just find that so powerful and motivates me more even more to to help educate. So I really want to talk about your book um, because I think that's a whole nother of achieving bliss uh, moment. Um, but before we move on, um, any resources or um, or documentaries or any anything that you would recommend to people to f- to achieve more of this idea of being a part of um, impacting the future of our democracy.
1: I didn't, I didn't come with receipts for that, so I'm not entirely uh, – <laughs> I didn't know I was going to have to do that. Um, you know, I can't point to one thing in particular, um, but let's, let's just say that people need to start where they are, right? you got to bloom where mm-hmm. you're planted, right? Mm-hmm. And what I would say is whatever the issues that are important to you, right, uh, start there. Uh, if you are an environmental activist or you, you are concerned about the environment, uh, you know, maybe go uh, you know check out, like, say, the Sierra Club's website or uh, you know, start with non-governmental organizations that, you know, appeal to you. Um, the other thing I would say is I think that people ought to invest in, you know, there, there are several different resources. And actually, now that I think about it, uh, there are some resources that I have uh, literally in the back pages of my book. Uh, in terms of, uh, so I would suggest, uh, I'm a huge fan of, I think, you know, the federalist papers is really interesting, but that's kind of academically for me. It talks about a lot of boring stuff about, you know, how to structure a government so that the president doesn't say, I don't know, hold a convention speech on the South lawn of the white house and, you know, spend our money for fireworks but I have always been inspired by, uh, by the letter from the Birmingham City Jail that Martin Luther King wrote in 1963. Uh, I won't spoil it for you, uh, but I think it's the best call. Now, it's not necessarily a call to vote, uh, specifically to vote, although that obviously was a big part of Dr. King's agenda, agenda just as it was for John Lewis, you know, the uh, congressman from, uh, from Georgia who recently passed away. Um, And I think that, uh, but I do think that the letter from the Birmingham city jail is to me, it's the best personal connection to the declaration of independence by any, um, by any modern, uh, you know, and and to the extent that we can still call Martin Luther King modern, uh, by any modern thinker that I can think of. And what it really does is, you know, for context, Martin Luther King Jr. You know was involved in you know all sorts of uh, you know protests, many of which people don't seem to remember, uh, actually did result in riots and, and violence, oftentimes perpetrated by uh, you know Bull Connor and the you know, and the police in the South, uh, and weren't as squeaky clean as a lot of people would say now. Uh, but Martin Luther King was involved in in something that we call civil disobedience or specifically nonviolent direct action. The idea was that if, if black people were being disenfranchised all across the South and other places, you know, couldn't get to the polls, were intimidated from going to the polls. uh, Then if they didn't have recourse to the vote, then they had to take some kind of action because their natural rights, their basic human rights were violated. And what Martin Luther King lays out in the, the letter from the Birmingham city jail is he had been arrested for participating in in, in acts of civil disobedience. And this is before the March on Washington. Uh, And uh, he was in Birmingham, Alabama and a lot of white uh, Christian preachers who had otherwise in the city of Birmingham would otherwise been very kind to Dr. King. uh, They had take you know, they effectively had taken out, you know, newspaper ads kind of condemning you know him for being a quote-unquote outside agitator for saying hey you're going too fast you know people aren't ready for this you know let's be incremental and this was this letter was basically a a fundamental rejection of that idea and what he appealed to was this idea that you know laws have to be just an unjust law is no law at all is what he said quoting saint thomas aquinas and What it lays out for me, not in a broader sense in terms of civic mightiness, is this idea that we have to become active in the life of our community, however that is, uh, and not just passive. Now, ultimately, I think the best way to do that is to vote, is to put people in power that will respect our rights, so we don't have to resort to things like that. Mm -hmm have to resort to nonviolent direct action or acts of civil disobedience. Uh, But what I think the letter from the Birmingham city jail ultimately does, it lays out an ethos, a moral principle for people to act against injustice, against tyranny and against racism and every other ism that afflicts us. And so, I would recommend, personally, that's an all-time favorite, I would read the letter from the Birmingham City Jail by Martin Luther King, uh, written in 1963, uh, which was a very pivotal year uh, for this country. So that's where I would go. Um, Another resource I would say, and this I think has to do with, uh, again, uh, not voting in particular, but cultivation of an active civic life, and actually, in my copy, of this book is when I show it to you on the zoom here is pretty awful. Uh, I have beaten it. And I think that, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, I don't know what kind of sauce that is on the cover, but it's a sauce. Um, <laughs> there's a Yale professor by the name of Timothy Snyder. And the name of this book, it's a small booklet is called on tyranny. And it's uh, 20 lessons from the 20th century. Timothy Snyder is a, uh, uh, you know, a very, very bright man who has studied authoritarian governments, autocrats, dictators for most of his career. And ultimately what he uh, decided uh, to do in response to the election of Donald Trump is he wrote this little booklet. It's 20 lessons. It's very short of how to prepare. And, he, and he's somebody who saw it. Some of us saw it you know, early on that Donald Trump wasn't just going to be an unconventional president, that he had something else on his mind. Uh Basically, 20 very simple lessons of things of how to live in a society in which, uh, effectively democracy is under assault and is crumbling. You know, for example, one thing that he says is, uh, and number one is, do not obey in advance, meaning don't ultimately concede your own sovereignty or authority to somebody that's going to take your rights from you. Uh, number six, be wary of paramilitaries, in other words armed vigilantes who are taking the law in their, into their own hands who ally with the order, which is what we really saw in Kenosha this week, as we saw a 17-year-old kid uh, illegally travel across state lines to murder two protesters. And that is effectively the definition of a paramilitary. This is something that he wrote several years ago. Uh, number 15, contribute to good causes. and But ultimately, number 20, be as courageous as you can. And I think that voting is an act of courage. I think that living a civic life is an act of courage because you are going to get flack for it. Um, I know that I've posted some, you know, to some people kind of incendiary things on social media in the last, you know, several years. And uh, this week, I think I posted something that cost me a couple of friends uh, on Facebook and it's sad, but I am not going to be silenced or censor myself because it might offend people. Uh, we have to speak truth and voting is a subset of that idea of speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. It's the old speaking of truth to power.
0: Right. And what I can say about knowing you and knowing you on social media is that you are absolutely courageous in speaking the truth and you listen. Like I've never known you to be someone who is completely, um, completely convicted in a way that you are not willing to listen to the other side or represent a well rounded thought and i i i i I enjoy that about you and that's why I listen to you because I think if you were like full blown you know disregarding all angles, I think that would be one thing, but you're really good at just assessing all the angles and trying to speak to many people um and i and that's what I hope for most of us like bipartisan life to me, isn't a fun life. Like I feel like we should all be listening to each other and uniting
1: each other. I agree. I, I, I want to give this caveat. Uh, I have, <laughs> I, I'm not always a saint on social media. Sometimes <laughs> my emotions get the best of me. And sometimes people say things that are, are so to me, just so completely untethered from reality sure. that I react. So I don't, I, I, I appreciate that. I wouldn't paint me as somebody that's, that's never, you know, been reactionary. Cause I know I have been.
0: That's um, fair. That That's fair. And I think that, uh, you know, some things deserve a lot, a lot of passion and yeah. And, and we're, we're humans and we're responding to, you know, injustice and we are, you know, trying to represent people that we love and that we don't even know because it, we know it's important. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate the caveat, and that's fair. I, I think that we're all, um, we're all just fumbling through, and you know, trying to do what we think is best.
1: Agreed, agreed.
0: So. Um, let's talk about your book and the the things I want to achieve from this. And I probably shouldn't hold on to you for your entire Saturday. Um, the what I really yeah. want to understand are two things. Um, yeah. The first is. Um, what, what was your thought process in like, Hey, I want to write a book and then actually muscling through to actually write it. Um, which, because I feel like that is some, a lot of people's bucket list. Like I want to write a book and I, I have dreams of writing a book and you know what? It's intimidating as hell. Um, so I, I really want to know your thought process and if we can inspire some people to write that damn book. Um, but before we do that, let's just give us a summary of what the book's about.
1: Okay. First of all, I'm going to give you a caveat. Um, today's Saturday. What did I say? You said it's Saturday. It is Saturday. I have no idea what day it is anymore. It's, these are all days. This is quarantine. This is COVID life.
0: It's totally gelled together. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Um, so you're not taking away my Saturday because um, so the title of the book is American Phoenix. And if you were to search for it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, there are a couple of other titles, uh, American Phoenix as well. There are history books. Mine is kind of a history book. Uh, it's a novel. Uh, the, uh, the basic premise is, you know, the main character is a high school civics teacher uh, named uh, Benjamin Upson. And Ben Upson is a guy, he's a white guy in his early forties who, uh, he's broken. Uh, he, he, he's had some, some kind of trauma and tragedy befall his life. And, uh, and that's kind of shaped his attitude towards, um, you know, you know, towards, you know, issues of patriotism and race and things like that. But he's, he's kind of what you would consider, uh, what, I think he falls into the category of what Martin Luther King would have called him the, the white moderate, you know, the white person who is generally expressive of the idea of civil rights, but you know, is like, eh, you know, Hey, let's, let's all, let's all just kind of get along and not have conflict. He's trying to live without conflict. And he is on a field trip to Washington, DC, which is something I've done with, I used to live in DC and I also helped take kids to DC, you know, uh, most Springs except for the last one. And he, uh, there's a conflict that erupts between two of his students. One is a black student, my name of Tyson Atwater one is a white student by the name of Reed Collins. They kind of, you know, fit kind of archetypal roles. Reed is kind of a privileged brat. Tyson is somebody who's kind of, you know, somebody with his fist in the air. Uh, You know, he's, he is the epitome of, you know, of childish Gambino, you know, saying this is America. This is what it really is. And there's a conflict that erupts between them on this field trip. Ultimately, comes to fisticuffs. You know, there's a physical fight. Uh, Ben uh, has a, you know, has to kind of step in. And the way that he kind of steps in is he keeps telling Tyson to pick his battles. He keeps telling Tyson, no, no, you need to slow down, right? You know, stop, stop. You know, don't sink to his level. Don't do this. Don't do that. And very little, he's saying very little to Reed. He's kind of like, well, Reed's an asshole. I expect better of you, Tyson. And it's a little bit condescending. And, but ultimately they're in the Capitol and he's exhausted. Ben is absolutely exhausted. He encounters this woman, uh, this older woman whose name is Pearl. She is a Capitol docent. If you've ever been to the U S Capitol, it's one of those, uh, kind of tour guides with the red jackets. And, uh, she starts telling him things about himself that nobody could possibly know. And then she ends up sending him on this whirlwind through time. And what she tells him is that, That fight between Tyson and Reed, that one little battle was the last battle of the American Revolution, which is a bonker statement, right? It's 2020. He's like, what do you mean? Sends him through time. Uh, You know, know, sends him, you know, his first trip is he goes to to Palm Beach, Florida in 1962. And he ultimately is uh, charged with this idea that he has to find this mythical sword called, you know, Excalibur, you know, based on the Arthurian legend. Uh, that will ultimately be the one weapon that defeats tyranny, right? In defense of liberty. And effectively, he goes on this, what I would describe an odyssey across time. Uh, and he meets, you know, there are a lot of, you know, kind of ghosts who he encounters. Uh, the first one he meets is is the ghost of, you know, basically the ghost of John F. Kennedy. And what ultimately happens is, you know, as he goes through this journey, is he's forced to confront um, not just the the nature of Of racism and injustice in American history, but to reconcile that with uh, his own understanding of history and also to kind of confront his own inner demons uh, and confront his own acquiescence to to injustice and tyranny. And that's really the theme of the book. I won't spoil the rest of it, but that's the basic overview.
0: That's amazing. And I'm glad you didn't spoil the rest because I'm currently reading it and enjoying it. And I was joking that I in doing an Oprah moment where I'm like doing my research about my guest before having you on. So I'm really proud of that. So tell me about this journey of like, I, I want people to hear like how you wrote the damn book. Cause I really want to write the damn book myself okay. and yeah,
1: let's hear it. All right. So, um, where do we? start? So the book, as I kind of alluded to earlier was a, it, it, I started writing in the summer of 2017, right around the time that, you know, I kind of had to put the law in the mirror. Um, and I actually first, it, because in part, I, what I wanted to do is I had this idea of the American story that I think had been missed by the electorate in the previous year's election. That that, uh, And you and I, you know, both know, you know, a lot of people who are very patriotic, very outwardly patriotic and, uh, you know, wave flags and, you know, support our troops, things like that. And that's all well and good, but it, it doesn't go much deeper than that. And it's kind of a, what I would, you know, I would describe as a Mickey Mouse history of the United States. The idea that it's like, well, it's the greatest country on earth and it always has been. We've had a problem, but we're still awesome, et cetera. And what I wanted to do was say, no, yeah, this is a great and exceptional country, but it's not because of the things you think. And I think that's part of what I was trying to get across with, uh, uh, through Keepers of the Republic. I did a lot of Facebook live streams back then, uh, and I was, but it was kind of wonky and pedantic. And it's like, you know, I'm just explaining these concepts. But it felt like I was just trying to teach, you know, uh, you know a We the People class or a, a high school government class to adults. And I just kind of got to the point where I said, you know, I don't think that this is – I don't think the problem – is a problem of the head. I think people can intellectually grasp these things. The problem is an issue of the heart. Mm-hmm. And also just the idea that I, I don't think that Americans are in touch with their own story. And I initially, when I wanted to write this book, and I thought that, you know, I, I wanted to write a nonfiction book. And I actually laid out a bunch of chapters uh, that I wanted to write about, you know, and I wanted to write about topics like, um, you know, uh, natural rights and how the, you know, how the constitution was formed and what, you know, the framers were worried about. And then also the history of race. I kind of wanted to take all of the things that I was trying to teach in, in, in through keepers and just kind of put them in one book. And it's actually ironic. It was my, my mom at that time. And you, you met my mom in, in, mm-hmm. in 10 years ago at that time, she was actually living in uh, Sausalito. And so she was close to you. Yeah, And I went and I drove uh, I drove to see her one weekend from Reno and, um, and I had this book idea and I pitched this, I pitched the book idea to her. We were at a pizza place in San Rafael. I want to say, uh, and, uh, and as I was sitting there explaining the chapters to her, I could physically see her eyes glazing over with boredom, like, <laughs> <laughs> I could see it. And I, I, and I knew obviously, cause my mom is my number one cheerleader. She's my number one advocate for anything in life. And I'm like, if I just lost my mom, this is going nowhere. Right. But there, there was one chapter that I had kind of buried towards the back and the title of the chapter was conversations with ghosts. And the idea was that in this chapter uh, you know, effectively we'd have a conversation with all of these people in America's past. And I had the idea of like Abraham Lincoln and, you know, JFK and all these other people, you know, kind of commenting on our current moment and the fact that we were dealing with, you know, a a real kind of tin pot, authoritarian dictator and you know, what they would have to say about it kind of as a way to say, Hey guys, listen up. People in our past would have hated this guy. Mm. And, And as I explained that chapter, the glaze came off my mom's eyes. She's like, stop. I said, what? She said, all those other chapters, they're nice. I want to read that book. Not that chapter. I want to read that. Uh,
0: Oh, mom. Go, on. And
1: I, yeah, it was, and she said, I want to read that book. And I said, okay. So what you're saying is I should do this idea of conversations with ghosts and extrapolate it out. I again like, yeah, into a book. I don't think she necessarily meant that she wanted me to write a story, but literally that, you know, the, the next day, you know, there's a park across from her apartment in Sausalito and I went out and I just kind of laid out a, like, laid out a blanket and I had my laptop with me and I just started kind of uh, punching out. And I, and I literally actually, I don't know why it came to me. Uh, I had scenes from the sandlot in my head.
0: I could tell. I could yes. tell because yes. uh, there's a part where JFK is like, "There's nothing more American than fireworks and baseball," right?
1: Yeah, on the Fourth of July, which on the 4th, is yeah, yeah,
0: Fourth yeah. of July and baseball.
1: Which is a block part, which was the block party in the sandbox. Yes, I don't know, I don't know why I had that in, in mind, and you know, it's the same year that 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 you know the movie came. That movie was set in 1962. And I, and my, actually, ironically, my dad's birthday is July 4th, 1962. So I set that chapter on July 4th, 1962. And I just started writing this idea of like, what if somebody encountered JFK, you know, somebody from now encountered JFK in 1962 and had a conversation with him. And I started kind of building from there. And I got to tell you that, um, I'm not entirely sure how I ended up writing this book, um, Cause I've tried, I've tried my hand at fiction before. And every time I've tried, uh, was, it just went flat. I would go, I would write three or four pages and then I would read it back to myself. <laughs> this is garbage. And I'm a writer. I mean, I've written before. I, I, I used to write for silver and I wrote for, um, uh, for the cauldron, which was a, a sports illustrated, uh, adjacent, um, website about five or six years ago. I wrote one article on, on Colin Kaepernick, mm. uh, interviewed his father.
0: Uh,
1: and, uh, this is before the, the kneeling thing, but, uh, so I'd had experience writing articles and kind of writing stories like in, in a short format. Uh, but the idea of, I, I don't know where the story was. I think that ultimately is that this story, this idea of what America is and where it came from and how it got to be is something that had just kind of been in there. And I really just started kind of shaping it bit by bit. Um, uh, and I kind of took the advice of, um, of Ernest Hemingway. He said that when you have writer's block, uh, if you don't know what to write, just write one true sentence, write the truest sentence, you know, that's the specific what he said. And so I kind of took that adage. I said, okay, I'm going to write, if I don't know where to go, I'm going to write the next sentence. And then I kind of stream of consciousness, let it flow and just kind of imagine a vision. Okay. So how would this character react to that character? And what would this character as I've created them naturally do in Mm -hmm. response to that? And I had kind of goalposts in mind. I did, I'm not somebody who like, you know, uh, Stephen King or JK Rowling or whatever, you know, let's set aside her, her issues uh, had like a, I didn't have like a cork board with all these, you know, I didn't have like, you know, the wall that a conspiracy theorist would have with all the yarn. That's not, you know, that's not what happened. Um,
0: the, um what's it uh, it's always sunny
1: the charlie, God, charlie yeah. he's got the and he's like moving the hands and yeah. yeah 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 no um, that's you know a lot of people a lot of writers kind of have that they're more what we call plotters people who plot everything out i was a little bit more of what i call a pantser somebody kind of pull flies by the seat of their pants <laughs> Panser. I love it. That's, that's, a, that's a legitimate i learned that phrase in the course of writing and uh I set goalposts of where I wanted to go. So like, I was like, I want to get to this point and I want to get to that point and that point and that point. And I just kind of set these markers of where I wanted to get to. And then, but I had no other guidance. So I effectively said, okay, I'm going to put my character on the game board and then kind of trust my characters to write the story. Cool. And that's really kind of what I had to do was, was let go of the idea that, because you can tell if you read, you know, there's some novels where you read them where it's like, it's very clear that the author is forcing the characters to do something that the author wants, right. but that character in that circumstance wouldn't do. And so what I had to kind of learn to do is say, you know what, I have to kind of let them go. And if they take me a little bit in a direction where I didn't think, where otherwise I wouldn't necessarily think they should go, yeah, I should go there. Maybe I gently guide them back to where I want them to go, but I'm not going to force it. So I wrote, you know, I wrote my first chapter, the second chapter, and um, I was getting, you know, I sent the first chapter again to my greatest cheerleader, my mom. Uh, she was, you know, and I expected her to be like, oh, this is kind of cute. And she got back to me. She said, you need to finish this. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. So I got through it. My first draft, which I wrote, you know, from July or August of 2017, finished it in March of 2018. So about six months or so. And I really just kind of plowed into it. And um, and it's, it's really what I did for that time period is I wrote that book. And I got to that point. And at that point, the book was approximately 130,000 words long. For reference, Jurassic Park is 130,000 words long. Okay. So, so you really I, went for it. <laughs> I went for it. And I, and I looked, I, and then I read it again. I was like, It's a little too much. Uh, And it was a little too teachy. I was teaching too many things through it. So then I went back and I said, okay. And I I sent out like two or three query letters to to, uh, literary agents, got one rejection, the other two didn't even respond to me. Like, all right, that's depressing, but okay. And then I said, I think the problem is the word count is too long because publishers are concerned about word count because that's pages printed. That's cost of printing that eats into the profit margin. So then uh, probably for the next year or so, I kind of set about just cutting it down. But the way I was cutting it down, I was kind of hacking and slashing. What I was doing is I was like, all right, any unnecessary adjectives uh, or adverbs, get rid of them. And then I read it again. And so it had a good word count. It was like around 100,000 words, but it was very blocky. It, it didn't flow as well.
0: Sure.
1: And I kind of was stuck there until honestly, I want to say earlier this year to like January, February, March. And then uh, I decided, especially when the pandemic hit, I said, "You know what? It's kind of now or never. Mm-hmm. I need to get there." I had resisted self-publishing because there's, you know, there is this—I uh, think there's a stigma behind it. It's like, well, you're self-publishing because it's not good enough to be published by, sure. you know, and and a lot of people believe that. Um, and sometimes that's true. In my case, I said, "You know what? I don't know what's going to happen with the publishing industry with COVID." I'm just going to have to go for it. I said, well, no, I don't have to worry about word count. So I kind of beefed it back up again and streamlined it. And that took about six to eight weeks to really kind of get it there. And then I went through uh, the process with Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble have print on demand, which is crazy. Is it literally until you buy the book, that physical book doesn't exist. They have the cover and they have the the book itself and they, Slap it together and, and then they send it to you. And that's how you got your copy, was literally print on demand. There's nothing that is, uh, there, American Phoenix does not exist in any copies in a warehouse anywhere. Wow. Uh, which blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. Uh, and I also had the fortune that a friend of mine, uh, her boyfriend, is an audiobook narrator mm. uh, in California. And I talked to him about the project and he agreed. And he and I have been working on the audiobook. Uh, since uh, April or May, no, May it was Memorial Day when I sent the manuscript to him, and we've been going through chapter by chapter, you know, getting accents right, getting you know, making sure that things are you know, and, and uh, the idea is I want to do a separate release of the audiobook probably for the next two or three weeks, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of re-release it and launch it there. So, um, the process of writing a novel is it was exhilarating and grueling at the same time. I'll tell you that the initial writing of it was a lot more exciting than having to go back through and kind of tighten it up. It was a lot more, it was much more of a grind, but I got through it and, you know, uh, I I have a, I I have a published novel. Um, So I have checked that off my bucket list. Yeah,
0: it's amazing.
1: Uh, That's where we are.
0: That's so cool. And I didn't know that you could self-publish. I actually had no idea. And I just find that to be with anything that we do in life, I feel like we are always creating these barriers, whether they're real or not. And finding a publisher and a supportive publisher is an actual barrier. Um, and it's one that can be hurdled in, in this case uh, by self-publishing. And I just, I find that exciting for people who are maybe also learning, learning that for the first time, maybe even for me who might want to self-publish at some point. Um, but yeah, I think with any, any project, including this podcast, including your book, it's like, you can make any excuse on the face of the earth to not get this done. And so there's a level of persistence that's like necessary, (laughs) um, and daunting. Um, but you did it and I, I can genuinely say that. Uh, reading it, I really enjoy it and will finish it and will tell people to read it because I think that you did an incredible job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. And I was telling you yesterday, because I've known you for so long, um, I can hear you in the characters. I can hear your voice, which like, you know, for anybody out there who has a friend that's an author, like, what a cool experience to like hear, hear your friend in these people. So that's neat. Appreciate
1: Yeah. So, well, yeah, that's, uh, it, it, it is what it is. That's you know, like when it, when it first came to me, when my author proof copy came to me and I was like, this is a little bit surreal, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's doable. Uh, you know, and look, it doesn't have to be And there are all, all sorts of reasons. You can want to write a book. Um, mine, you know, obviously I had a message to get out. I had a story to tell and I had, you know, um, you also have the idea it's like you know I, I kind of want to do this you know uh, if not for my primary source of income I'd like to you know continue to write um, and it is it's doable yeah and, and don't be dissuaded by ideas the idea that well you know my story isn't good enough or you know look it right what I would recommend to people to do is write the story that you want to read right mm-hmm. don't Write a story that you think other people would like. Write the story that you want to read because you find it interesting. Because if you find it interesting, I guarantee you that other people will as well. You're not the only person who would like the story. So if you like the story, write that story. Um, yeah. because you can tell, you know, when an author has really kind of sold out and just written something you know that's very temp, that's very templatey mm-hmm. and uh, color by numbers. So, you know, the, you know, my story doesn't really fit into any one particular genre. You know, in this era, in the 21st century with social media and with things like print on demand, which you can do through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Book Baby, a whole host of other self-publishing services, uh, it is easier than ever to get it out there. And you don't have to have the overhead cost of printing 10,000 copies and then not selling them and effectively losing money on the project. So Uh, it's possible now to get your product out there and for it to be a superior product, uh, without having to go through the gatekeeper of a traditional publisher. That's
0: really cool to hear. Yeah. I'm I'm pumped. Well, so we did, we did agree that it is in fact Saturday. Um, but we both also agree that we don't have other things really going on in our lives. (laughs) Um, so there wasn't a, a time limit here, but I, um, I think this is a good as time as any to sign off and thank you so much for sharing your passion. I hope people hear this and and are inspired in in many ways, whether it's writing a book or learning more about our country and how they can best um, participate actively in it. And uh, and ultimately, for me, you know, educate themselves enough to go vote and and create an amazing path for for our country and for ourselves
1: for sure definitely well thank you for having me katie
0: yes my pleasure thank you scott
1: all right have a good one
0: adios take care